Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also for me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will bring back to, Israel, to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers, turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until this day happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he'd stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realised he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. May the Lord bless that reading to us this morning. Well, friends, we're going to spend the next few uh, sermons looking at these early chapters of Luke's Gospel in the lead-up and celebration of Christmas. Uh, So keep that passage open. I will have a time for questions at the end if you would like to ask one, Uh, but how about I pray? 
Our Lord God, we do thank you that Luke set out to write this orderly account of the Jesus story so that we might have certainty about the things that we have heard. Father, give us certainty this morning of what you have accomplished through your people, for your people, and ultimately through the Lord Jesus, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. Lord, help us see how this passage points us towards Jesus. We pray that you might move us to respond to Jesus in the way that we should. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now, Gavin said seven days to Christmas. I count eight. I guess it depends whether we count today or not. Anyway, Christmas is coming. Did you know that? And some of you just knowing how many days there are might make your heart beat a little faster, might make your chest tighten, because instantly your mind turns to all the things you still need to do to get ready. You still need to go and catch that seventh swan. Still need to mow the lawn and buy the ham and get the presents and work out what to get Aunt Joan. You still need to work out where all the guests are going to sleep. You still need to work out how you're going to fit three months' worth of food into your fridge. There is much to do to get ready. It's no wonder that many of us get to this time of the year and just, you know, a week out say, oh, I can't wait for this time to be over. I can't wait for Christmas to be done. We spend so much time and energy getting ready for Christmas that by the time it comes, we're more than happy just to see it leave again. But friends, if getting ready for Christmas makes you anxious, which I know it doesn't, everyone, but if it does, well, this morning, take comfort because... Here in Luke's Gospel, we're going to see what God did to get ready for the very first Christmas. And when we understand what God did to get ready, it'll become clear to us that there is only one thing that we must do to be ready for Christmas. Friends, the message this morning is that the presence can wait, the housework can wait, that determination to stuff your loved ones with more food than they can stomach, that can wait. If you want to be ready for Christmas, you need to see what God did to get the world ready for his Christ. And so this morning we're going to see this story of a great king, a great priest, a great promise, and a great prophet, all of which focus our attention on the great God and his great plan to save the world. So we're going to consider the passage under those headings. And so as Luke sets out to write an orderly account of the Jesus story, so that his friend Theophilus might have certainty of the things that he has been taught, he begins in verse 5, by telling us that the Jesus story begins in the time of a great king, in the time of Herod, king of Judea. Lots of people today think that the Jesus story is a fairy tale. I was teaching RI at New Seville, and um, the students couldn't believe that I was telling them that Jesus was a real person. 
They, they genuinely thought he was made up. But the way Luke presents his gospel is that this is a carefully researched account of historical events. This really happened. And he invites his readers to check the facts. It happened in a real place, the land of Judea. And it all happened in a real time during the reign of a king named Herod. Now, there's more than one Herod in the Bible. I don't know if you realise that. Actually, show of hands, be honest. Who thought there was only one Herod in the Bible? Who thinks there's two? Who's not voting? Who thinks there's three? I thought there was three. Who knows how many there actually are? There's six. Six Herods, how confusing. And often they are just called Herod. But we can work out who they are. Come talk to me later if you're interested. Um, This Herod is Herod the Great. I'm pretty sure he coined his own nickname. Uh, He was called Great because he was a great builder. Uh, He built like aqueducts and theatres and temples. He built himself this really impressive palace. But probably most famously, he built or rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. He was a great builder. He was not such a great person. In fact, he was a maniac. He was notoriously ruthless and paranoid. He killed anyone who he thought would threaten his power, which included the whole court of royal officials at one point. It included three of his own sons, his own wife, and of course the story that we know from the Bible, all the baby boys in Bethlehem. He he was a maniac, he was a tyrant, he was paranoid, he was cruel. It's important for us to know that it's at this time, under this king, that God's people are living. This is their ruler. Now, as great as Herod was, uh, for Luke, he's just a signpost. He's just a date marker. And Luke very quickly skips over the great king to tell us about someone far more important, a great priest named Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah is a priest. He's married to Elizabeth, who also comes from a family of priests. And in verse 6, Luke says that both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees. Blamelessly, sorry. Observing all the commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, he's not saying that they were perfect. They were righteous because they trusted God. But walking blamelessly and obeying the Lord's commands is how the Bible describes many imperfect people. People like Noah. Noah walked blamelessly before the Lord. Abraham. Abraham was righteous before the Lord. But the Bible describes all of these imperfect people that God uses to bring about his purposes. But the fact that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous and blameless, would have made verse 7 particularly difficult for them to come to terms with. Because in verse 7, after telling us that they were blameless and righteous, Luke writes, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. 
Now, more and more in our culture, childlessness is being considered desirable. In Jewish culture, childlessness was completely undesirable. It was considered a curse. It was a source of shame. In the Old Testament, when the prophets speak about God's blessings, they would use the image of crops thriving, wine flowing, and mothers just pumping out babies. That was the sign of God's blessing. And so a woman that could not conceive, well, that was a sign of the curse. And it was, a, it was a terrible thing for Elizabeth, a source of pain and shame for her, as it still is for many people today. Now, it's important that we see that even righteous Zechariah and Elizabeth suffered in this way. That bad things do happen to God's people. Please don't expect otherwise. But what I find interesting here is the particular kind of suffering they experience, childlessness, barrenness. Because this isn't the first time we come across this sort of story in the Bible, is it? We see this theme repeated again and again and again. Think back to the Old Testament. So, So many of the notable women of the Old Testament were barren. It begins probably most famously with Sarai, the wife of Abram. Just like Elizabeth, she's barren, she's old. But God uses this cursed woman as the first step in his plan of bringing blessing to all the people of the world. Then there's Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, Rachel, the wife of Jacob. Uh, Less well known, but in Judges 13, we learn of Samson's mother being a barren woman who an angel appeared to and told her that she would bear a son who would save Israel. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? In 1 Samuel, there's Hannah who was barren until she prayed to God and God remembered her and gave her Samuel. All these women God uses to bring blessing to his people. But you have to wonder why that is, don't you? There's just too many examples of this for it to be a coincidence. Why does God choose to use these barren women it's not just that God is kind although he is kind and it's not that these women deserved God's blessing it's because it is God who brings blessings to his people that they don't come about because of the decision of a husband and a wife no it is God who initiates God who brings the blessings God who gives life to the barren woman, the barren womb. It is God who does the impossible. God who chooses the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. It is God who overcomes the curse to bring blessing. It is God who saves. This this repeated theme of God choosing the barren woman to bring about his purposes is a reminder that it is God's initiative to bless and to save. And so as he's done so many times before, God is about to use another childless couple to usher in the greatest blessing ever given. 
In verse 8, Luke retells the biggest day in Zechariah's life. He says, Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, we're told in Jewish history that there was probably around 20,000 priests in the time of Zechariah. That's just way too many, isn't it? I remember working in a, in a sports shop uh, that had too many staff and not enough customers. And any time a customer walked in, they just got swamped with people trying to help them and they hated it and left. Uh, there were too many priests in Zechariah's day. So they were divided, divided into 24 divisions. Each division would serve in the temple for one week twice a year. I don't really know what they did the rest of the year, but maybe it was a sweet job. During that week, one priest was chosen to go into the temple to burn incense, and once they did it, they were never allowed to do it again. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is the biggest day of Zechariah's life. For a priest, this is the Melbourne Cup or the World Cup final. It's a big deal. And in this greatest moment in Zechariah's life, God does something truly great. In verse 11, an angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah. Zechariah does what almost everyone in the Bible does when they encounter an angel. He poops his pants. And so the angel responds to Zechariah in the way that almost every angel does when they encounter a human. He says, do not be afraid. And then he says, your prayer has been heard. Now tell me, what does Zechariah pray for? Luke doesn't tell us. And the assumption that many people jump to is that Zechariah was praying for a son. I want to challenge that assumption. Because first of all, Luke tells us that in verse 7, Zechariah and Elizabeth were both very old. Now, regardless of how much they wanted a child, most very old people don't actually expect that God might give them a child. I suspect that Zechariah and Elizabeth stopped praying for children a long time before. Now, of course, Zechariah knew that God could do whatever he likes. If he can give a donkey a voice, he can give an old woman a baby. But down in verse 18, after hearing from the angel that he will have a son... Zechariah doesn't believe it. And it's a very funny conversation that he has down in verse 18. Have a look. Uh, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. To which the angel replies, I am Gabriel. That's his answer. You're an old man? Who cares? I'm Gabriel. Zechariah is like, I'm old. It's impossible. I can't have kids. Gabriel is like, I stand in the presence of the God who made everything out of nothing. Tell me more about this impossible problem that you have. Now, I don't think Zechariah believed what Gabriel said, that he would have a son, because I don't think he expected to get a son, because I don't think he was praying for God to give him a son. I don't think he was praying for a son. I think Zechariah was praying for Israel. 
In the temple there that day, Zechariah stood as the one man chosen to intercede for the people of God. I don't think he's using that once-in-a-lifetime chance to pray for his own wants. I mean, that would be like a member of parliament using their position to further their own business interests. And we all know that wouldn't happen. Zechariah's not praying for himself. He's praying for the nation. I think he's doing what Simeon and Anna were doing later on in Luke's story, praying for God to do what he had promised to do and redeem his people Israel. I think he's praying that first song that we sing, O come, Emmanuel. He's asking that God would send his Messiah. Now, at this point in history, God's people had been waiting in agony through 400 years of silence. Now, God hadn't actually been silent. Israel had God's written word. God was still speaking, just as he speaks to us now by his written word. But it had been 400 years since the last prophet Malachi had been around. Can you imagine waiting for something for 400 years? You can't. It's a long time. But 400 years where God's people were waiting for this long-promised Messiah, this king who would redeem Israel. At this point in time, God's people are living under a terrible king, a cruel tyrant. But then after 400 years of silence, when Zechariah prays to God for the redemption of Israel, God answers that prayer. To a priest whose name means God has answered, God made a great promise about the greatest prophet who would direct our attention towards the great God in the flesh. Verse 13, Gabriel tells Zechariah, you will have a son. And while normally it's the father's prerogative to name his own son, in this case, God claims that right. He'll be called John, which means God is gracious. He'll be a joy and a delight to you as a child is to their parents. But many others will also rejoice at his birth. He will be great in the only way that matters, great in the eyes of the Lord. Just like Samson and Samuel, he will be set apart for God. But unlike anyone else ever, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit before he's born. And in the power of the Spirit, he will go calling people to turn, to repent, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What we have here is God himself, through his messenger Gabriel, promising Zechariah that his prayers for the redemption of Israel have been answered, and they've been answered with a signpost, a pointer. Gabriel promises Zechariah that John will be great in the eyes of the Lord. In Luke 7, Jesus goes so far as to say that among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Do you hear that? Jesus calls John the greatest person to ever live. 
That's pretty huge. But do you know what it is that makes John so great? Do you know what it is that makes John great in God's eyes? Because it can't be easy to be great in the eyes of God, can it? It can't be easy to impress God. Some of you have a dilemma. You're trying to work out what to buy as a Christmas gift for the person in your life who has everything. What do you do to impress the God who quite literally has everything? How do you become great in his eyes? I'll tell you how. You be like John. You live for someone else. You see, most people spend their days living for themselves. I think that's probably part of the reason that voluntary childlessness is on the rise. There are many people today who don't want kids to get in the way of them living their lives. They're living for themselves. And psychologists will tell you that there's, there's actually something good and fulfilling about living for others for someone else which is why as painful as parenting can be it's still a really popular option for those that can have kids and it's why as difficult as marriage can be it's still an overwhelmingly popular choice for those who find a partner pouring yourself out for a partner or a child is good It's fulfilling. We weren't created to live for ourselves. We were made to live outside of ourselves. Uh, This is one of the ways that Martin Luther actually describes human sin. He says it's a heart turned in on itself. A a self-loving life. Now, psychologists know it's damaging. The Bible says it will destroy you. We were created to live for someone else. And chief among of that, most importantly, we were made to live for God. Friends, the thing that made John so great is that is exactly how he lived. He lived for God. He lived his life wholly in service of the one whose shoelaces he wasn't worthy to untie, the Lord Jesus. And friends, if you want to be great, if you want to be great in the only way that matters, not great in the eyes of your partner or your parents, not great in the eyes of the world, but great in the eyes of God, then learn from John the Baptist and turn. Because that was John's message to the world, wasn't it? Turn. Repent. It means turn around. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's a challenge to change. John came to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And he did that by calling them to turn from sin. And to turn to Jesus. You see, it's as if we're driving the wrong way down the Bruce Highway and we're about to make a head-on collision with the semi-trailer of God's justice. And John is there saying, turn around. And throughout the Gospels, it is only those who listen to John's call that are able to take hold of the promises held out to them in Christ. 
It is only those who do turn who receive salvation in Jesus. Without repentance, there is no salvation. Without turning, there is no blessing. Without repentance, there is no grace. And friends, it's here that we see what it really looks like to be ready for Christmas. God sent, Je- God sent John to prepare the world to receive Jesus by calling on them to turn, by drawing their attention to their sin, to see that that is a problem that needs a solution and to point them ahead to the solution that is coming. Friends, at this time of year, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the arrival of God's Saviour, we need to hear that message again. Without repentance, Christmas is empty of all meaning. We can sing joy to the world, and yet there is no joy unless we hear John's call and turn. Without repentance, Jesus coming to the world is not good news at all. And so friends, if you want to be ready for Christmas, or really more specifically, if you want to be ready for Christ, if you want to know the hope and joy and peace that comes at Christmas, learn from John the Baptist. Turn from living for yourself. Turn to the greatest man to ever live, the great king, the great prophet, the great priest, the great God in the flesh. Friends, turn to Jesus this Christmas. Let me pray. Now, Father God, we thank you that you sent John to prepare the way for the Lord, to call on people everywhere to repent, to turn, to recognize the problem of sin and to look forward in hope to the solution to the Lord Jesus, God in the flesh. Lord, we pray that this Christmas we would learn from John's ministry, that we would recognize afresh our need for a saviour, Because, Father, it is only when we know our sin that Christmas is good news. That you sent Jesus, who was without sin, to become sin for us, to receive in himself the penalty for our sin, dying our death, so that we might live as your people. Lord, refresh in us this message. Remind us again this Christmas of why it is that Christmas is such good news. Lord, for those who are here who are yet to turn from their sin, Lord, would you, by your mercy, move them to repent. Help them to see that they are facing uh, a dead end, a destructive end. Lord, would you help them to see their need for a saviour? Lord, we pray all these things in the name of our great Saviour and King, the Lord Jesus. Amen.